Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Every Wednesday, in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, this week in Sound of Play 193, can you believe it, is a composer. Composer for games including God of War 3, Far Cry 4 and Devil May Cry 5. And we'll hear more about those. It's Jeff Rona. Welcome to Sound of Play, Jeff. Hey, Leon. It's good to, uh, good to uh, be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So. You are a Californian composer. Um, if if one must uh, define oneself by one's uh, geography, then uh, yes, you you have you have nailed where I'm sitting at this moment. Good, good. And uh, you're also you are or have been part of the the Hans Zimmer Collective Media Ventures. Uh, guilty. Guilty. Yes. yes not um, our, not our first uh, one of those because there's there's been a lot of people gone through those amazing doors, right? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was there. Um, we worked together for about 10 years. Wow. Okay. And uh, I'm also I want to ask you about some of the other uh, non video game collaborators uh, that you've worked with over the years between uh, the tunes that we listen to, because there's some pretty Im impressive and exciting names in there, I see. Um, oh, okay. And also, yeah, I mean, your first, uh, you, we've already uh, talked a little in the virtual green room. And uh, as you mentioned to me, and this was this struck me about um, about your CV is that uh, you are a composer who's been working your your earliest credits on IMDb are from the early nineties, early mid nineties. Um, uh, looks like thank you big... for reminding me. <laughs> well, you worked on what a friend of mine just called when I said I was talking to you. He said the greatest TV show of all time, Homicide: Life on the Street. That um, yeah, break. that was my very first uh, my very first uh, foray into. Well, that's actually probably the first thing I did on my own. Yeah, that must have been 
uh, nerve-wracking and exciting. Was the show already up and running when you worked on it, or were you there from the beginning? I was there from the very beginning. Right. Uh, the director, the producer and director of the show, Barry Levinson, who's one yeah. of my favorite directors. Yeah. Uh, I'd worked uh, with him on a movie uh, called Toys uh, with uh, Hans Zimmer and Trevor Horn. Right. And um, And then Barry had this TV show, and honestly, at the time, in the early 90s, Nothing had ever been been done like it. It's the it's the show that sort of uh, gave birth to things like The Wire yeah. and other shows that were shot in a handheld documentary style. Yeah, uh, he broke all the rules of procedural crime dramas by doing a show that had nothing had ever been done like it. And he came to me specifically with the idea of music that it doesn't sound like music. So we got away with well, we created the the first truly ambient score for major network television that had ever been done where i could sample police sirens and radios and manipulate them and add only wisps of guitar and other instruments so that it was truly an abstract project and we did that for several years it was uh it was exciting and we kind of got to invent our own rules amazing and then, we... even, and then even break those uh, is uh, you already mentioned the the a word there ambient and uh, that i mean that just naturally brings me on to a couple of those collaborators i mentioned i mean uh, you toured with brian eno is that right i did some shows with him yeah i was in a band sort of my only true band experience and okay it was fairly a fairly bizarre band at that yeah. uh, one of brian <laughs> eno's longtime collaborators is a composer trumpet player named john hassel and I had a relationship, uh, a, a musical partnership with him for a few years, which included um, some some live concerts with with uh, Brian. And um, yeah, it was a, a completely different view of of composing in that it was refined improvisation, uh, which is a great way. Uh, and this was before I even got my first opportunity to work on a, a film or a TV show or anything to to have a a really unique perspective on on making music of of being very open-minded of experimenting taking the best of your experiments doing something with it taking the best of that and trying again and kind of like a zoom lens slowly going from something truly abstract to something uh concrete but but still very uh well, you know, look, it's always about creating some kind of an, an, an emotional landscape, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it can never be a, a truly intellectual process. It really ends up having to be a very gut instinct. And in the, in the many uh, years since working with guys like uh, Hassel and Eno and uh, to some extent when I worked with Philip Glass, yes. um, you know, it's like uh, one of, you know, one of many arrows in your quiver of of how to approach creating anything but in in my case it's music so um for me uh what i learned in those in those uh, experiences was one way of working that's less traditional and it's part of my pro it's been a part of my process ever since but you know to that i'm also doing things that are a little more um of a conventional process but, you know, I, I figure it's like one half of my work involves going for a more uh, specific uh, concept and then 
embellish that with things that are completely uh, experimental and I'll know it when I hear it. Yeah. So we're probably going to jump around a bit, but it's uh, fast forward through like 30 or 40 uh, TV and movie credits. And then you got a job on a video game for the first time after you'd already been doing this professionally for best part of two decades. Uh, your first game credit, according to IMDb, is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, which I guess was the film tie-in. Yes, I think it came out after the first or second uh, Transformers. And um, I did two games for them. Um, and these were these were relatively small games by, by uh, current standards. Um, and uh, yeah, one was sort of you play from the perspective of the the Autobots, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. That's it. Uh, <laughs> and then the other game, you're you're actually one of the... Um, Decepticons. I'm, I'm the Decepticons. The evil bad robot. Thank yeah, you. I'm, I'm just slightly too old for Transformers. Uh, sorry, <laughs> but I, but I, know, I know the names from the games. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was my first real uh, dip. Although... Uh, in the early days when I was working with Hans and he had just finished The Lion King, oh, he said, hey, they're doing a video game of The Lion King. Could you go and and help, you know, translate the score into whatever they're doing oh, wow. with the, their composers? Yeah. And uh, oddly, I was working with Disney Interactive, Disney's in-house um, game development company. And the producer of that game was a young guy named Michael Giacchino. Yeah. Who, had not written any music professionally at that point, wow. but um, he he was the producer of the game. He and I worked together on it for several weeks. We became uh, close friends. Then I was doing some more TV, and actually I gave Michael his first opportunity to write for, for television or anything. Nice. Um, before he got into Lost and uh, Alias. Um, but, but actually it was his experience over at Disney Interactive where some – score got thrown out and he got his first chance at a video game by uh, just replacing something. Fabulous. But anyway, so uh, I had a brief thing with that, that and that was super early on. And then, yeah, I did the Transformers. Um, and then I did a couple of little indie games that probably don't show up on IMDb. Ah, we might know them. We, we, we go all the way through. <laughs> I don't even remember their their names, but okay. there were a couple of little uh, sure. mobile games that, that okay. popped up. Maybe we don't. There's a lot of those. So, yeah, again, jumping around. Uh, so we opened the show with Sabal, which was a piece from uh, 2014's uh, Pretty Big Deal, Far Cry 4. Uh, you weren't the only composer on this, though, were you? Uh, Far Cry 4, is that right? Um, yeah, that was... Um, I, I've had a long collaboration with Cliff Martinez. Um yeah going back to uh, before traffic. Um, and uh, so Cliff had invited a, a couple of other composers to uh, help out on um, Far Cry, which was an incredibly ambitious project. Mm. Uh, actually, the first thing I did was uh, I did the trailer uh, right. for the game, and then um, Cliff suggested that some of the elements might might make it into the game and in fact i ended up um diving in uh uh pretty heavily and getting involved in quite a bit of the score and so um <clears throat> the two pieces from far cry 4 that we're gonna well we've heard one of them sabal and we're gonna hear uh aj gale as well these are character themes um so what did you what 
I know you'd obviously you'd already worked on the Transformers and God of War at this point, but how much of Far Cry 4 did you know before composing these themes? Were you given sort of character uh, outlines? Were you shown any footage or anything like that? Or were you kind of feeling around in the dark? You know, I think uh, Far Cry is one of those franchises where because they they move the game geographically and because they really like the music to have a kind of an ethnographic uh hand yeah um far cry 4 which took place in a sort of a fictitious nepal yes was 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 pretty fresh musically in terms of of the music from the franchise plus it was the first time um you know cliff got involved and so he you know he brings a particular aesthetic as well so um you know, both Sabal and uh, Ajay Gale um, were were themes that really had, uh, you know, the opportunity to come at it pretty fresh. A bit of gamelan in there, did I detect? I'm I'm not. Yeah, a, I'm a fan, I, not an expert. I I went to um, I went to Bali uh, in 2000. I brought some recording equipment with me, and I I got very interested in. Um, in Balinese music, and I, I learned some of it, and I bought a gamelan ensemble. Uh, I mean, I bought the, the the instruments of a gamelan orchestra uh-huh. that I brought back to LA and sampled it, but I also use it live, and so some of that um, enters into uh, the score, actually pretty pretty heavily. Yeah. You know, the point isn't to be, I mean, Bali, you know, is pretty far away from Nepal, mm. um, but, but the you know, the the elements of Asian uh, music are pretty rich and, and there are certain sounds that are, that kind of transcend borders to some extent. And um, these metallic instruments Mm. uh, that are in the gamelan that you, you, you see in a lot of countries uh, and certain drums, they're just incredibly compelling, aren't they? Yeah. I absolutely love the sound of it. Uh, It's something that I've kind of really, discovered in recent years but i've noticed it has cropped up in more games uh monster hunters got some gamelan in it even super mario odyssey has a gamelan piece in it and uh, recently mm-hmm. tetris effect has a great gamelan level and obviously the music is based around or the game is based around the music and and vice versa and this gamelan level is really atmospheric and um yeah it's mm-hmm. very uh it's yeah it's 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 got a, an atmosphere quite unlike anything else it's both slightly um it'll put you on edge slightly but it's also relaxing it's a curious mix yeah and of course you know 99 percent of the time when you hear it in a game or a score um they've been retuned to the western scale but yeah, uh right bali adheres to a, a five note scale mm. and the notes of of their scale do not translate to five particular notes of of the 12 tone right in western scale so when you're in bali uh, it's a very different uh, effect on you uh, musically. How you mm. how you hear it is pretty trippy. Sounds truly alien uh, to our Western ears, at least. It kind of it kind of does. And you know, they build their instruments in pairs, and the pairs are slightly out of tune, ah. and are designed to always be played together. So huh. there's this element of of shimmer to to the music when it when you hear it. Um, that's pretty beautiful you know that you're always hearing two instruments slightly slightly out of tune they call them male and female Ah, so make of that what you will (laughs) beautiful thank you for that genuinely fascinating insight um and bringing sort of moving back in time from the far cry 
your second and and perhaps you know from from a a gamer enthusiast point of view probably your first big game um no, with no disrespect to transformers um god of war 3 obviously this was the the third by the game. way you can disrespect transformers all you want i <laughs> i'm 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 fine with that <laughs> um god of war 3 was the the third mainline game in an already very popular series that had been around yeah. for five years at this point um this was the first game of the series on the ps3 and it's obviously since come in uh even higher definition to the ps4 in remastered form you yeah. were one of five composers here on this project um mm -hmm. and this i mean you know with I, i'm always impressed when a composer is uh, we'll hear from your different pieces here that you're able to uh, work in in all kinds of different soundscapes and palettes and and subgenres of music. So this, I mean, this is obviously super grand, uh, Greek uh, infused kind of magisterial, colossal Sunday afternoon entertainment uh, pieces. Um, again, what I mean, I, I'm assuming perhaps unfairly, but I'm assuming you weren't sort of completely au fait with the God of War franchise before you worked on it? Um, <clears throat> I only knew it very peripherally, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, I, uh, I had a friend who was working at the Santa Monica Studios right? Uh, and, and was sort of the, the project manager for God of War 3. Uh, and he'd worked on God of War 2 and he'd been mm -hmm. at Sony for some time and uh, my studio was just a few blocks away and he said, you should come on over and let's have lunch. And I'll, by the way, I'll introduce you to the, um, the God of War three team. So I went over and met, uh, Stig Osmussen, who was the art director on one and two, but was yeah. now the game director on three. And mm. he said, Oh, I'd love to hear some of your music. Um, could you send some over? I'm just curious. So I did. And, um, I had done a couple of fairly epic, uh, scores. Yeah. Um, and so he called me back and he said, you know, I really do like your music. Unfortunately, you know, we really have our music team for God of War 3. It's pretty much the exact same team from God of War 2. Um, but I just want you to know that's pretty cool. And he said, but, but you know, we're working on a trailer and maybe you'd be interested in, in doing that. And I uh. said, absolutely. So I wrote the music for a, a, a God of War trailer, but with a completely original theme. I see. And, and he, Stig called me up and he said, okay, we love, you know, we love this. This is great. Would you mind if we actually, we like it so much. Would you mind if we use that theme in the game itself? Could we just adapt uh, your music? I said, absolutely. And I, I, I wrote a, a slight adaptation of it that wasn't so uh, geared towards the trailer. Right. And he said, this is great. Thank you. And I, you know, I really apologize that, you know, we don't have a spot for another composer on our, team so that was all fine and then he called me up he said you know we could use a couple of different versions of this theme we really like it um and i said absolutely so i wrote two or three different versions since you know a typical part of scoring a game is exactly that that you um that you do variations of any given piece so that it can be yeah. used for tension for battle what have you mm -hmm. and then you know, we went through a couple more rounds of it and he said, you know, we actually need a lot more music and we really like what you're coming up with. Would you mind just joining the team? So after about six weeks of me just sort of being on the on the periphery, I became uh, pretty much a part and parcel part of the team. I think I did um, a substantial amount of, of, of the score. But that trailer became 
the theme from that trailer became became the theme that they called Anthem of the Dead, which has been. I mean, I've heard a couple other people cover it. You know, there's yeah. uh, it's 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 a popular, uh, I guess, um, uh, part of that score. Anthem of the Dead by my guest Jeff Rona from God of War 3. Originally, it was merely for the trailer, but as Jeff has explained, ended up with uh, with being very made into a ver- variety of versions for the game itself. Um, and I'll tell you a, a little secret about that piece, not to get too uh, technical, but um, I was I was experimenting with writing a melody that was neither in the in a major key or a minor key. I wanted to see if I could do something kind of tonally ambiguous, which I thought would would kind of add a, a a greater sense of sort of uneasiness. And so with that theme, every time uh, as the melody unfolds, I alternate between major and minor. So virtually every third or fourth note of that melody confounds you as to whether or not it's a piece in major or minor ah. until the very end. Then um, is very much minor since, you know, when you, when you work on God of War, the only notes they usually give you is darker and more darker, <laughs> darkerer, <laughs> darkerer. Yeah. Um. So what uh what music did you grow up listening to and loving? What what inspired you as as a youngster and and moved you to become a creator of music? You know, I think I went through a few different phases. Um. Not a ton of pop music, but there was a lot. You know, there was pop music in my childhood, and then kind of moving into, I had a, a bit of a jazz phase, and yeah. got interested in some jazz music that was pretty avant-garde and pretty cutting edge. Um, yeah, and then um, I had a, a roommate at university who had this utter love of film music and had a collection of soundtracks, mm-hmm. and I had never paid attention; it had never registered to me, uh, and so. I started going through his his uh, soundtracks and kind of fell in love with with that genre, starting with huh. Jerry Goldsmith wow. and Bernard Herrmann and yeah. you know sort of classic the masters uh, film score writers whose music I think still was challenging and interesting. And then I also got very uh, connected to minimalism, and I spent uh, you know a few years working with Philip Glass on some of his scores and operas and uh, live shows, and that was very influential. So, 
you know, and then and then I, I got very uh, interested in world music, and that became I play a lot of instruments from different countries and continents, and and so I, I think through my my career I've gone through you know fairly enormous phases of of different styles of music, and um, you know I, now I listen to a lot of EDM and ambient and um, and uh, I'm, you know, really interested in what uh, some of the young electronic writers are doing. And so, you know, it's just uh, it's uh, I, I eat at a different restaurant every night. Good stuff. That's what we like to hear. Uh, yeah. And it def- I think it definitely shows in the in the music that uh, that you've brought for us. We also like when we have a composer on to ask uh, ask you to bring some pieces from other composer's work in yeah. within the sphere of video games that you've admired and uh and this is one uh, this is a piece we've featured before but that's absolutely fine it's a popular one among composers uh i, I wonder why you think that is this is going to be leaving earth by clint mansell formerly of pop will eats itself of course um yeah. yeah what is it about this piece that uh, that stands out to you and uh, made you bring it forward for this show well i'm in in all cases of of the music that I picked, I picked it from composers whose work I knew before I heard their games, right. their game scores. Mm-hmm. Um, I I met Clint not too long after he'd moved to the U.S. and was just getting into his collaborations with um, Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, and I I just thought you know, I I really do admire somebody whose background is in pop. Mm. but whose sensibilities i think his pop influences feed his scores in 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 such an amazing way you know when when you're a good pop writer you you know you you are attuned to this idea that for lack of a better word you'd call the hook mm-hmm. something simple direct and memorable that just sticks with you and in every score that clint does cuz he's not a pop writer it's not a minimalist, but those aspects, the, the repetitive nature of his music, the way his music grows, um, there's something so visceral about Clint Menzel uh, that just always leaves me just, I just find his music gut-wrenchingly emotional. And when I heard uh, the score from Mass Effect, uh, actually, I didn't know it was Clint Menzel, but I knew... Uh. But I figured it out before somebody said, oh, that's Clint Manziel. I was just listening. Somebody had put that soundtrack on and I said, wow, that sounds like Clint. And it is. And he he's one of those instrumental composers whose instrumental music has such a signature to it, um, which I find to be rare and beautiful. And and yeah, it's just a majestic, uh, very moving piece of of music.
That was, of course, Leaving Earth from Mass Effect 3, which is now seven years old. Can you believe it? We remember it quite fondly in the wake of what's going on with that development studio at the moment. Who knows if they'll ever make anything quite that good ever again. Uh, I can, we can only hope. Uh, but pure speculation. Uh, I'm here today with my guest, Jeff Rona, composer. Uh, and as always, when we have a composer on, we get we hand over the show to them, uh, both in terms of listening to some of their music from games and some pieces that they've chosen. Our next piece is one of Jeff's own. This is kind of a, a counterpoint, a, a counterpart, really, to our first piece, Sabal. This is uh, the hero's theme, I suppose, from Far Cry 4. And what do you remember about putting this one together for, for that game, Jeff? You know, this is a point in the game where uh, the landscape shifts quite a bit. And we're in a we're in a slightly we're in a very different world. A lot of it takes place in this in this village that's been, uh, you know, captured. And and you're trying to liberate this uh, small mountain town. But this is a part of the game that takes place in in. Um, a little bit more of a of a just a, a different environment is is the best way to put it, mm-hmm. and so it was an opportunity to make uh, a, a kind of a a tonal shift. So there was a it was it was good to kind of say, well, you know, we're in the same game, we're in the same story, but we're going to go to a different place in that story and tell a different and tell it and tell it differently. So there's certainly nothing heroic about it, to say the least. Um, I mean, we're still trying to generate um, a lot of a lot of concern and worry. And, I yeah. mean, it's just it's an edgy piece of music. Yeah. So um, uh, Sabal Sabal is is a little is a little more uh, world music. It's a little more. Um, it has it's a more colorful piece. It opens up uh, a lot more colors where uh, Ajay. definitely kind of grounds you and i and and i'd I'd say it's a lot more uh percussion driven right yeah absolutely well let's enjoy it this is ajay gale from far cry 4 by jeff rona
There you go. Jeff Rona's piece, one of his uh, pieces for Far Cry 4. Uh, joined by Jeff, as I say, today. You know by now. Um, one of the things <laughs> I wanted to ask you about was your. Uh, you have some pretty fantastic uh, director's names on uh, on your list of people you've collaborated with, including yeah. Ridley Scott and Robert Altman and Soderbergh and Demi and Darabont and, and Spielberg. Um, any, uh, I mean, is, is that all through the, the, the Hans Zimmer studio stuff or is this, uh, is no, some of this? No. A few, a few of those were, um, but, uh, I did an HBO project with, uh, Frank Darabont. Um, I met Steve Soderbergh through, uh, helping Cliff out on a couple of things, but, um, uh, and then some of the other ones were, of course, I, my, the first, uh, feature film I ever scored was, uh, a Ridley Scott film. That was my, my first solo film credit. Which one was that? It was called White Squall. Ah, White Squall. Yes. Okay. Cool. Wow. It's a movie that did, yeah. did well in the UK and, and not so well in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not, not, a, not a bad one to have on a, on a credit at all. Um, yeah, I find, um, obviously, you, you, you know him, you've worked with him. I always find Ridley Scott a, a compelling person to watch being interviewed. Um, he seems to be one of those people who he he's come he comes across cross quite irascible, but you sometimes he'll just burst into laughter and and he seems like he's he's got a he's very serious and intense, but also I think he's got quite a wicked sense of humor as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting actually. I was working on on another project with him. I was helping out on the movie Gladiator, wow. and it was right at the time when uh, the Sony engineering team was were preparing to release uh the playstation mm. and they came to i can't remember who introduced us but the the designer of the chip that is the playstation's brain to this day which they call the emotion engine oh yeah his yeah. team he and his team came to to talk to me and um and so i thought wait a minute i got, i have to introduce them to ridley who is you know in the next room and it was actually, it was a pretty great, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes where they were trying to explain what uh, this new generation of, of consoles was going to offer yeah. storytelling. And Ridley was fascinated with the idea of being able to tell stories in a nonlinear way. So it was kind of mm. great to watch him try to wrap their head around um, their philosophy of... of um, of storytelling and how they were able to sort of introduce, you know, a master storyteller to a very different approach. Yeah, obviously we've had uh, Guillermo del Toro is is another uh, modern masterpiece of storytelling who is, you know, deeply invested in in video games and the video game world and he's he's involved in in projects and has been involved in projects that haven't come to fruition. I gather John Carpenter is also a, a huge gamer, massive games fan. Um, obviously a real, you know, veteran of, of, uh, of cinema as well. Um, yeah. Spielberg, of course, see. Steven Spielberg yeah. is a huge game fanatic. And when he yes. uh, started DreamWorks, it, he started, um, you know, uh, well, he was really into World War II uh, video games. 
yeah, I remember he famously had an arcade in the early 80s when he first had a lot of money. Like you would walk into his offices and there would be, you know, classic coin ops lined up. I don't know if he still has those, but uh, he also, um, so, you know, his name is actually on the on the box of a Wii game called Boom Blocks, which came out about 10 years ago. Uh, it has none of the kind of Spielbergian stuff you would associate, but apparently it's the concept, a concept that he came up with and pitched to EA and they made a game out of it. So, yeah, that's of course they did. Yeah, of course. Well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, one more name that I just wanted to mention, just because obviously you've got all these fantastic uh, stories and names you can throw at us. But uh, uh, and forgive my pronunciation, um, but Basil Polidorus. Yeah, Basil. Bas Basil. Yeah, Basil Polidorus. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm a fan of his from uh, particularly from his work with Paul Verhoeven. Uh, sure. I lo love the Robocop theme and Starship Troopers and all that. But what what did you uh, what did you do with uh, Basil? Um, you know, that was during a period of time where I was doing a lot of synthesizer programming for oh, okay. um, record company for record producers, but primarily for film composers. So I was his I was helping do uh, synthesizers on two or three movies with him and then um, a little bit of additional music on a, on on a movie whose name I can't remember. So, yeah, I helped him out on maybe two, three movies, nice. but his studio was pretty near me. So we, we just became friends and it was great to, to spend time with him. He is an unabashed, uh, an unabashedly melodic composer, yeah. but who still has a sense of of underscore and how to not overwrite music. Uh, such an inspiring guy, uh, such a phenomenal talent. I'm going to broach the subject then. So one of the criticisms of modern film scores is a lack of melody, right? A lack mm -hmm. of strong themes. Um, and sometimes, perhaps unfairly, in your mind, that's been sort of used as a criticism against Hans Zimmer's studio and, and the methodology that's utilised there. Um, as a composer, would you like to, would you kind of embrace a return to the, the era of, Ennio Morricone and John Williams and, and all the, you know, the real memorable, whistleable, hummable themes, uh, or at least for some movies that kind of warrant it. Um, because even thinking about the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a few standout themes in there that, you, that you'll remember, but there's a lot of, um, I'm sure, beautifully composed and incredibly well-made music that, is, that becomes kind of um, homogenous and... Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of, it feels like a shame to me because I grew up loving, adoring all these themes from, um, you know, all, particularly the John Williams stuff from the Spielberg and Lucas films. Mm -hmm. And those tunes now mean so much to me. I wonder if, am I just not hearing them or are the kids of today not going to have those? I, I, I think you're bringing up a really uh, broad, broad topic. There's no, there's no answer to that. I think that in in visual entertainment there are so many new ways to tell stories you know there are so many different voices in as filmmakers as television makers and television has taken on such a different role in the past 10 years and video games and now vr games you know we're looking at the absolute pinnacle of diversity in storytelling there, there is no set style for making a film, for making a game, for making a, a television series. It's, it's amazing. And I embrace that. I think the fact that there are 
so many styles and approaches and some you know some tv shows don't really have plots anymore you know yeah. there yeah. there's a whole uh new wave of 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 tv where they are really more like intimate personal portraits and at the end of it it's gone and then it's 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 finished and there isn't that traditional arc of plot driven material that doesn't mean we have seen the death of plot and i think the same is true yeah. if not more so and has has been for a while um musically there is uh there's never been a more diverse time of different kinds of composers when you have mm. people like um you know when you have people like john williams but you have people like M mika levy you know yeah uh and and you have m83 and you have uh crystal method and you have i mean the diversity of voices scoring whatever games tv movies shows the hunger that the makers of those uh different projects are embracing so you have trent reznor mm. who whose music is as compelling as you can imagine and sometimes there's a melody but often he really relies on these very simple uh, hooks, three or four notes, yeah. take you through an entire film. But by the end of it, he has wrought, wrung out every drop of emotion that you could possibly think of because he's such a good composer. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's an either or if then thing. Um, yeah. I don't think it's true that everybody who's you know gone through um, having having a relationship with Hans Zimmer comes out of it uh avoiding melody at the yeah. end of the day you have to remember this every note of music you ever hear from a score no matter what it is was requested by and approved by somebody else other yeah. than the composer mm -hmm. it's not that composers make these choices i'm going to write a melody or i'm going to avoid a melody yeah a certain composer gets hired because of something they've already done somebody hires trent reznor because they like the way his mind thinks musically same with literally every composer everybody chooses who they're going to collaborate with based on what they hope to achieve so composers know this um just in the music that you're uh generously uh playing of mine today and thank mm. you so much uh <laughs> for thinking of me no, thank um, you. I would say about a third of it is highly melodic. Yeah. And um and the rest absolutely isn't. Yeah. And that was because there there was by design the desire for melody to either lead and God of War actually mm. very melodic. Yes. Far Cry not so much so. Uh Devil May Cry which I don't know if you're playing uh, a piece from that. Yeah, but lost that's track. actually literally a song. It is. Uh, yes. sung. So it it is by definition highly melodic. Mm -hmm. So I've had a career where I've been given the opportunity to make it a creative choice and I'm I embrace both. I love writing melodies. It's it's a great feeling and it's exactly what you said your musical upbringing includes really fond memories of hummable melod melodic m music from scores and that's really important to you you know somebody said that about 
a quarter of our brain only remembers the theme songs to commercials that we grew up with. Like <laughs> yeah. all the silly jingles. Oh, yeah. All the yeah. silly adverts, you know, for, you know, chocolate bars and beer uh, takes up an enormous part of our brain, which, you know, you know, I guess is fine. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, I think what that means is that our our brains are are literally wired for melodies mm. because our brains are are literally wired to look for patterns, mm. and we can pick up a simple pattern without us even thinking about it. So a melody is a simple pattern. Mm. You you can't have a melody if you only play it once, and that's why a really great composer like John Williams, uh, you know, you you watch one of the Indiana Jones movies. And at at no point has he ever thoroughly left. Da 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 da. da. He may make it a baseline. He may obscure it in some way. But John Williams is that wonderful example of a master of somebody who takes a very core idea and can flesh it out into ninety minutes. That's not where television has been for a long time. No. Uh, and I think in the, in a lot of ways it started with what we did on Homicide a long time ago, mm. which was how to do something that was emotional, but not conventional in its use of a, a melody and a melodic instrument. So I've embraced it for my career, and most of the um, uh, most of the television work I've done, because of what I'm known for, has been wanting music that is more ambient, experimental, uh, electronic, and ultimately uh, not well, I guess maybe they would say distracting because yeah, some yeah. because some filmmakers worry that a melody might distract from what's really important, which is uh, decoding the dialogue. Certainly. And I've, a lot of, uh, in fact, you know, Spielberg's films, when he's made more serious films, that's one of the criticisms that's been leveled against them. And Williams music is that perhaps Williams wasn't always the best fit for his more serious works in that the melody was so up front front and center and strong that they were detracting from the incredibly you know serious subject matter i'm not necessarily saying i concur with that in all cases but mm -hmm. that was a criticism and sometimes <clears throat> the music needs to needs to take a, a back seat or at least be while embellishing the scene not kind of dominating it yeah understood i think i think my yeah. feelings on this are known yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think you you make absolute no. I mean, I I complete I I embrace both as well. I I suppose I just feel that maybe there's been overall there's been a slight um in mainstream cinema in kind of popcorn blockbusters there's been a move away from strong uh, memorable themes for yeah well, you know you brought it I agree and you brought it up earlier the 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 Marvel universe yeah. uh, I mean those films you know. Are for a very specific audience and the yeah. people who make those films know it they're really really savvy about why people go to see comic book films mm. and um it's not that those scores have no melody whatsoever oh no of course they, not. they just don't lean on the melody the way a john williams score yeah, leans on melody sure. in a more conventional way mm. all all of those films have melodic components and those melodies are used in in that more traditional way of you hear it 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 might be attached to a character when that mm. character is on screen that theme is somehow being woven in but 
the style of the Marvel uh, films is such that you get dropped into the story in the middle. There's yeah. there's no preamble whatsoever. You know, they, they usually begin with a battle, which typically you don't score melodically, you know, not even John yeah. Williams. No, right. Uh, not even more conventional composers use, you know, battle sequences as a place to exploit melody. So you have these films which begin in the middle of the action. Yeah. So it might be 30 minutes before finally a character has, you know, opens up with some sort of a monologue where, oh, well, let's establish an emotional underpinning to this character. Let's establish a theme. Yeah. It's almost like it's almost a little bit too late at one point. But um, I think Marvel has just made the decision that they really like music that describes energy more than yeah. uh, direct uh, uh, character themes in that more old school way. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's I, my observation. That's the thing that's beautifully observed. I think I um I think it's also partly that when you're a kid and you go and see these things, firstly you haven't heard as much stuff or seen as much stuff, so it sticks with you more. But also, I would go and see these films three, four, five times at the cinema, and then watch them countless times on videotape and and uh, and later disc. And yeah. of course, all these things burn themselves into your brain. Whereas nowadays, I, I'll go and see something once, maybe catch it again a few years later on TV, and none of it has the that time to. Um, you you don't spend enough time with it for it to become uh, an earworm in the same way. So it's partly lack of familiarity. It's not it's not it's not the composers. It's it's the it's me as the audience as a middle aged man as opposed to a child. Uh, yeah. So I I I I think you're absolutely uh, right. And I, and I think especially with um, uh, modern television. Um, the people making modern television, and I and I think it it bleeds into uh, film and game, hmm. have a have an opinion about the importance of music, and the importance of music may I'm not going to say it is diminished, but it's changed and it's different, hmm. and it it may no longer it, it may no longer be that they that the that the role of theme as a way of describing a character from the inside out uh, really holds sway. I think that the dialogue is more important uh, to them and the feel of the of the project itself versus the feel of an individual character or an individual uh, type of scene just has stepped uh, forward. And I think a younger generation of 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 um, producers and directors are really comfortable with this idea. They go home and listen to very thematic music. But when it comes to this, they're, they're, it's more about feel and dialogue uh and just the overall mood of the experience than it is about well you know that character has this little ditty and that character has that little tune mm. Mm. well i think it's just a more modern way of thinking sure that's a fascinating topic we could probably do several hours on it but in fact let's hear some more melody from yourself ah. now this piece uh, was just too melodic. It didn't make its way into the finished game. So you wrote this piece. Uh, you were talking earlier about... Oh, it's about... In the game. It's just not on the soundtrack album. It's... Oh, sorry. It's not on the... Oh, great. Okay. That's even better. Um... Oh, yeah. Sorry. By unreleased, I meant um, it yes. didn't sit onto the soundtrack album. But this uh... is this is a, a far more melodic uh, battle theme uh, than um, Anthem of, of, uh, of the yeah. Dead. Absolutely. Maybe um, a yes, little more, no. just a little more conventional, a little more epic. Uh, mm. It was a chance to exercise a slightly different muscle. 
forgive me, you see, this is a, a great example of what I was just talking about. So it's been nine years since I played God of War 3. I've definitely heard this music, but it's been, um, I, I listened to it again earlier, but I haven't played the game for nine years. So it wasn't burned into my brain. So I'm assuming I'd never heard it before. Uh, but in fact, there it is. There it so is. This is. This is combat. Jeff Rona from God of War 3. It's in the game. It's not on the soundtrack. So don't go looking for it there. Uh, I'm sure some naughty people have uploaded it to YouTube and whatever else, though. Uh, they're no naughtier than us, except we talk over the beginning and the end of the track. So <laughs> <laughs> like an old radio show. Um, but we have we have tacit approval because Jeff has shared all his music with us to share with you. So uh, until Article 13 or whatever it is, the new EU laws come into play, the draconian uh, copyright police will uh will leave us alone for at least another few months we hope anyway um it's a complicated time jeff we we may end up having to can this show due to due to laws but um but as of, as of now we fly under the radar okay pirate <laughs> radio part two yeah yeah totally um that's kind of where we're at on the high seas uh now uh, another composer who again is often chosen by uh his peers, fellow composers, is Gustavo Santolaya. Uh, and this piece in particular, it's a, I'd say this was actually a kind of um, an interesting, based on the conversation we were just having, um, it's kind of somewhere between the two ideas of a, you know, a highly melodic piece and a completely ambient piece. This is a subtly melodic piece, I would say, The Last of Us theme. You know, what I like about uh, Gustavo Santolaya's music is how unabashedly personal it is. Um, right. It's very, very intimate, almost painfully intimate. And, you know, whenever you bring in a, a, a musical voice like his into the video game world, which, you know, typically thrives on high energy and 
very, very lush, broad, you know, music and writing, um, the willingness to have something that is as simple and and intimate as as the theme from The Last of Us, I, I find that um, I really like that because again, it's a kind of an outlier concept. Uh, I mean, of course, there are games with very intimate uh, themes from a number of 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 uh, video game makers and and composers, but to me, be, you know, because he's a guitar driven uh, composer and he plays his own music, there's something mm -hmm. even more personal when it's being played by the composer themselves, uh, as opposed to being translated into uh, an orchestra or an electronic palette. Always a joy, in a kind of grimly miserable sort of way, Gustavo Santolaya's The Last of Us theme. We covered that game back in a Cane and Rinse podcast. I don't have the number in front of me, but if you 
Google search Kane and Rince, The Last of Us, or go to com and put it in the search box. You'll find our podcast on that game there. Uh, obviously, many of us on the team are anticipating the sequel coming later this year. We think, we believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm joined today by a guest, Jeff Rona, composer. Uh, and that was one of his picks from other composers, from other games, other than the ones he's worked on. And we have another one next up. Uh, and so you said, Jeff, that these are all pieces from composers you had an admiration for or knowledge, uh, working knowledge of before their game work. And this is uh, Amon Tobin for Infamous. I can't believe this game is 10 years old now. Yeah. Um, Stanton Bridge. <clears throat> Uh, what is it about this piece that uh, that really stands out to you? So for for anybody who knows Eamon Tobin's uh, uh, work uh, as a solo artist, for him, everything is about manipulating sound. So although his music has a very electronic feel to it and he approaches it the way an electronic composer might, his sources are are heavily geared towards uh, live performances that then he goes in and through uh, all kinds of editing and audio processing creates these astonishing rhythmscapes. And his music is very driven by um, by rhythm and and color and timbre. Uh, and the way he does it is is so unique. And so I've followed you know I haven't you know a number of his of his albums. Uh, that I think are just absolutely one of a kind. It's incredibly organic and at the same time has a lot of the elements of EDM that make it exciting and fresh and energetic and and edgy, but, um, you know, done with, you know, you know, throwing uh, cereal boxes against the wall and, you know, dropping drums down, you know, wells and things like that. I, I just I just think he's. He's an utterly unique and and, uh, uh, fresh voice.
Stampton Bridge by Eamon Tobin from Infamous. We covered that game too back in a Cane and Rinse podcast along with its sequel. We did one and two together. We still haven't caught up with the third game or the spin-off to that third game. Someday, maybe. But again, check out uh, caneandrinse.com to find those podcasts or you can just dig them up on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your media from. And remember, please do venture over to our forum, caneandrinse.com slash forum, or you can follow us on Twitter at caneandrinse. Use the hashtag sound play if you want. We also have a Facebook page. And when we don't have a composer guest, you can request your favourite pieces from the history of video game music all the way back as far as you want and as weird as you want and as obscure as you want or as melodic and brilliant and amazing. And we'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each regular Sound of Play. Please subscribe if you don't already. Surely you do. Sound of Play and leave us an Apple podcast or iTunes review or rating. It's really helpful. Uh, It actually feeds into the algorithm that lifts us up the charts and gets us noticed by more people. Uh, Listen to our other podcasts, that Kana Rinse review show that comes out on Mondays. We have Playwright, where we create new game ideas on Thursdays, and The Sausage Factory on Fridays, where Chris O'Regan interviews the developers behind the games. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show and all the other stuff that we make, please do consider just $1 a month, a donation through our Patreon, patreon.com slash and it goes into keeping us doing what we do. Now, I mentioned the Sausage Factory there, and I think we have a connection here because recently Chris interviewed for Sausage Factory episode 222, Salix Games. I am told that you are working on the game that they were talking about, which is, uh, which is Dulac and Faye, Dance of Death. Is that, am I right? You are, in fact, quite correct. Um, Good. Uh, Salix is uh, such lovely people. Um, yeah. It was started by uh, Jessica Saunders and yes. uh, Philip Huxley. Uh, yeah, they Jessica's had worked together. Show. They had worked together on um, Arkham Knights, I believe, mm. and um, they met and became uh, this new entity. This uh, indie game company, and they have a love adve- of adventure games. You know, um, not a style that's uh, in, in vogue these days, is it? Yep. Not so much. No, it's more of a niche concern. Uh, there's a strong cult following. Uh, yeah, a loyal uh, subset of, of the industry, as, as with so many of the once popular genres. Um, so we probably, I expect Chris actually featured a little bit of, uh, of music in that show. Um, so can you tell us kind of what 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 approach you're taking to, for that game in terms of uh, your, you know, reaching into your your musical paint box? Um, absolutely. This this was really uh, an unexpected pleasure. Um, I had just finished working on uh, Devil May Cry, and I also produced a track on the new Resident Evil 2 reboot. And um, and uh, I got a call from from. Uh, one of the partners at Salix Games that they've been working on this adventure game secretly for a couple of years, and they'd been working with a British classical composer. Um, and at first, they thought he was going to just score the whole game, but as time went on, they realized that there was an element of of game scoring that um, he wasn't necessarily comfortable with. So they said, would you be interested in partnering and doing roughly half the game? So um, I said, absolutely. It was, uh, I saw very crude bits of video, but it was, 
I got to go from doing one of the loudest scores I've ever worked on uh, <laughs> to, to one of the quietest. So right. uh, this game is a historically accurate but fictional telling of the search for Jack the Ripper in London in 1888. Mm -hmm. um, so they were looking for a very acoustic, moody, kind of gothic uh, score. And so um, almost everything I wrote is in waltz time. So uh, oh. I, I love the idea of writing dark waltzes because it's yeah. it's just uh, it just is creepy for reasons. Creepy fairground music. Uh, absolutely. I just couldn't yeah. figure out you know, why, but I don't care. So um, <laughs> so it's it's written for piano, celeste, harp, violin, cello, clarinet, oboe, and a few other uh, instruments. So it's this intimate ensemble. It's very melodic. Um, Period appropriate. Um, little or no electronic effects or sounds. Yeah. Every so often a little tiny bit. Um, but you are... Uh, you 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 play. There's you can play it from a couple different characters, but the main character is a woman named Mary, who is having these um, hallucinations, and uh, she, it it leads her onto the path of a serial killer, and <clears throat> she's having to decide if if her if these sort of visions that she has are are uh, actually taking her, and as she does, she of course puts herself into uh, a lot of danger, but it, it has some very unusual storytelling techniques uh, that I'd never seen before. So it was enormously gratifying. Um, and uh, the score, I believe, is coming out on Immateria Collective um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'll send you information when I know. I don't think it, uh, the release date for the soundtrack's been announced. Great. The links continue. We had the Materia Collective on Sound of Play recently as well. Um, and by sheer happenstance, uh, the game is actually launched as we're recording this. Uh, it's today, uh, 5th of April 2019. It's now out on Steam. So check it out, listeners. Uh, yeah, the they, were, um, they weren't allowed to port it to consoles because ah. it has nudity and ah. uh, Sony won't allow no. any, any form of... of uh, of nudity and this this game has both male and female nudity in it and and it also has some um uh salty language for the time <clears throat> which yes. would be salty language for our time as well and they just made the decision that they felt that none of it was gratuitous mm. and that they were comfortable releasing it uh only on the steam platform and um see how it goes from there yeah uh absolutely and well, that kind of brings us to uh, the last piece you've got for us, because uh, there's been a there's been a little controversy around a, a bit of uh, blurred out nudity in Devil May Cry Five um, in the oh, European God. version. Yeah, some lens t tactical lens flare, we'll call it. Um, <laughs> only only in this region, apparently. Uh, anyway, but uh, you obviously you had nothing to do with either the nudity or those sensorial decisions. Um, but uh, you did work on you did work on the soundtrack. I, I was actually fully clothed when I wrote the music. Well, that's not the way some composers work. So, you know. I know. Have you tried uh, the yes, other way? Yes, I've, I've tried it both ways. Unfortunately, my <laughs> studio's just slightly too drafty. It's, uh, it's got a lot of windows. <laughs> that, would be, that would be the other problem. Uh, ground floor uh, on a busy street. Anyway, um, 
<laughs> uh, Crimson Cloud then uh, from Devil May Cry 5, as you mentioned earlier. Now, this uh, sounds like, to those of us who haven't heard every piece you've ever written for all your many uh, projects, uh, like a departure from the other stuff that you brought us today. So you've got a vocalist here mm -hmm. and it's kind of, you know, there's some electronica and some rock and it's, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I, d I don't know if you immersed yourself in the history of the Devil May Cry franchise and all the various weird music that, that have been along the way or whether you tried to deliberately avoided that or how did you tackle this one? Um, they came to me. Um, I had done the music for um, a, one prior Capcom project, which was Marvel versus Capcom Infinite. Yeah. She came out at the big, right at the very beginning of 2018, I believe. We did the work in the middle of 17. It came out in 18. Yes. Uh, and then we immediately started working on um, Devil May Cry and then Resident Evil in 18. And they came out in, uh, and then they just came out this last, this month. Yeah. But um, uh, the uh, Marvel versus Capcom Infinite, just as a quick aside, because I, I think- I was going to ask cool. you about that, because I'm a big fan um, of the series. So, um, you know, yeah. it, it, it was a kind of a, 40-year compilation of Street Fighter uh, games. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, you either played as a Marvel character or as a Street Fighter character. Mm -hmm. And um, th the job that they had me do was not to create original music, but they gave me roughly 30 pieces of music that spanned the entire 40-year history of Capcom. Most, yeah. if not all of it, written by Capcom's own in-house composers. Yes. Going so it starts off in the in the absolute beginnings of the eight-bit, you know, chip tune mm -hmm. style, yeah. and then it move. It was kind of fascinating to move through forty years of Japanese video game music as interpreted yeah. by Capcom, and it yeah. went through some pretty uh, interesting phases. Uh, yeah. It went. There was a kind of a period of time where they were sort of into this weird. Baroque style of music that was yep. played on like um, harpsichord sound, sounds yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from early synthesizers. <laughs> and then it kind of went into kind of like a a, a cheesy disco Miami Vice period. Mm -hmm. And um, lounge bit of lounge core jazz funk as well. It, it's well, I mean, let's just be honest. By today's standards, a lot of it was pretty grim. But they were very clear that a lot of this music was basically iconic to. Yes. The Japanese video game audiences. These are themes that Capcom felt everybody knows. So oh, what yeah. they said is, we want you to make all of the music sound as contemporary and cool uh, as you possibly can, but without yeah. um, in any way uh, subjugating the what was unique about the original music. Yeah. So the challenge was 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 pretty great because updating getting a chance to update some of this music. Some of it was easy, some of it was insanely hard. And the music that uh, I either wrote or produced was either hard rock, hard EDM electronic music, or very hybrid orchestral music. So they would, they would say, okay, this one we think should be orchestral, this one we think should be rock. So by the time I had finished that, and I brought in some partners to work with me on it, by the time, I had finished that project, which took several months. Um, I had shown them that I know how to write and produce music in rock, EDM, and orchestral fashion. Not that you know, which I've done a bits, bits and pieces of, 
you know, mm-hmm. over over my uh, my work. But um, they were really happy. So when Devil May Cry came out, uh, came up, they came back to me saying, well, you're clearly very comfortable working in rock and, and electronic. And that's what we did. So there are. So I was responsible for two themes, the the Dante themes and the themes for the character V. Um, I worked, I had a, a partner of mine do the rock music for Dante. Right. Um, which is a song called Subhuman. Mm. Um, Casey Edwards had already done Devil Trigger, um, the Nero theme. And then they said, well, look, well, there's a, a new character who hasn't appeared uh, as a playable character in Devil May Cry yet. This character V, we would really like you to do something. And our feeling is, and this is what, what really triggered it, is everything in Devil May Cry is very guitar driven. Could you do something that doesn't do that? And so the style of Crimson Cloud is based very much on their desire to have something be uh, aggressive, a battle theme, but not employ a traditional guitar or traditional heavy rock uh, uh, colors. Wow. And um, that's that. That was kind of the the springboard. Uh, we had talked about not making it as fast as the other songs and it's actually slightly slower Mm. but actually you Mm. can make music far more aggressive when you slow it down than when you speed Mm. it up you know there's a it's it's a misnomer that you know music should get faster 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 to get more and more and more exciting Mm. um there's sort of a difference between music for chasing and music for (laughs) expressing uh danger and brutality and in the and crimson cloud wasn't about a chase it was about survival. And so having it be uh, not so fast and not so dense became, became the, the springboard for the, the approach I took, which is very industrial. There's actually a lot of metal and, and distortion and me banging on, on pipes and what have you. So there's that process distorted, different kinds of drums processed and distorted. Uh, Rachel Fannin's uh, vocals processed and distorted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, banks of analog and digital electronics processed and distorted. Right. Awesome. Well, we'll close the show with it. But just before we do a couple of quick promotional items, uh, one thing, uh, our mutual acquaintance who kind of hooked us up, Thomas Quilfelt from Laced Records, uh, wanted me to ask you, are you looking forward to hearing your music, some of your music on vinyl? coming up i love hearing my music on vinyl yeah it's it's come up in in the past i think it is still a wonderful thing to have music that you can hold in your hand and laced does these just stunning uh uh, graphics and the the art and the packaging and the colors of the vinyl uh i think are just it just adds to the experience i mean you know the music is still the music but uh, having it in in this beautiful, beautiful visual way, I I, I love it. And yeah, uh, certainly if you have a turntable plugged directly into speakers and not going through a USB or a Bluetooth port, which for some reason some people have these these digital turntables that that does that mm-hmm. is cheating. Let's be clear. <laughs> when you do that, it is no longer analog. Uh, 
uh, it's just happening in front of you instead of in another building somewhere else in the world uh, yeah. con being converted. There is absolutely something delightful about um, about music, uh, about hearing music analog. Great. So people can pick up some Jeff Rona on vinyl. Uh, is that now or soon? Uh, on The Devil May Cry from Laced Records, um, my understanding is they're taking pre-orders now. It's a limited series, um, and it uh, won't ship for a few weeks. Cool. But um, I think it's, uh, if you want it, come and get it. We'll definitely have some people interested in that. And finally, I just wanted to mention uh, your solo album, which is, is it came out in 2017. But um, that was you know to to release a debut solo album after after many years of working uh that must have been exciting and um the the reception was good it it absolutely was it came out just at, around the holidays in 2017 so it's about a year and uh and a little change old uh yeah. which by the way people can get on vinyl through my website which is ah, uh, if i can plug jeffrona.com of course jeffrona.com it's a two album uh set but it's also available on all your favorite digital uh, yeah. outlets plus there are music videos for every single track um, I did it I did it I actually co uh, collaborated with um, uh, my dear friend David Julian uh, from uh, Memento and other Christopher Nolan films fame and he's yeah. my uh, avant-garde guitar player and Peter Gregson uh, the British uh, cellist who's put out quite a few amazing albums on his own and um, collaborates quite a lot with david arnold and stephen price so um yeah. and there's a few other wow. guests on it it's uh you know it's so nice uh to be able to tap the different kinds of music that uh sort of come up in my head and doing a mm. solo album after having done so many soundtracks yeah um it was a chance to do something really uh really fresh and it, it's it's um yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. I'm working on a second solo album now that uh, will hopefully come out towards the end of the year. Excellent. Well, listeners, do check all that out. Jeff, thank you so much for spending time out of your day to talk to me. Hey, thank you so much. And um, again, I'm as I said to you earlier in the uh, virtual green room, um, <laughs> I really do appreciate that you are, um, you know, shining a light on this um, funny little thing we do of the uh, the funny little noises we make on on the popular games <laughs> well, it's a big deal to us uh, so yeah uh, happy to spread the love um thanks again <laughs> for your time um hopefully we'll we'll have you back someday and we can talk some more uh, get a few few more game credits under your belt and we can listen to some more tracks from future products uh, projects products whatever you want to call them thank That'd you so awesome. much and we'll leave you listeners with this uh, with these battle theme from Devil May Cry 5 Crimson Cloud by my guest Jeff Rona and we'll see you next time on Sound of Play.